gotta stop trying to start every <laughs> fucking recording with a fight, Rob. That's the problem. <laughs> you need to wait. You need to wait a good twenty minutes till you drop the first f bomb. Yeah, you can't just come out of the gate with that shit. Ugh. It's probably true though. I think I think I did read somewhere you shouldn't do that on YouTube. Like not in the first ten minutes, or they'll our metrics go just go in the creator button. Hit they'll the demonetize you. They catch that <laughs> right at the beginning. They'll give us oh, demerits, man. man. They'll, they'll they'll make you put it. They have like a, a digital doggone cursing jar. I heard they'll. I, I heard that they'll uh, penalize you. Which sounds exciting, uh, to be honest. Yeah, that can't be. I've had worse Wednesday nights. (laughs) (laughs) Do you tell? Well, hello and welcome, you beautiful people. That's not how I do it. I started that off wrong. Let's see. What's up, beautiful people? This is Gary Horton. This is This Is Pro Wrestling. It's the podcast celebrating the past, present, future history, legacy, and tradition of the greatest sport of all time. Nay, the one true sport, professional wrestling. See, that's a callback. That's that's what we did there. I am joined, as always, by my best friends. This is Dr. Stinson. Hey, Dr. Rob, the star of the show. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What's going on, homies? I'm pumped. This is going to be a good episode. He's ready to be penalized. And the man who's going to do the (laughs) penalizing, it's this is Will Martin. Hey, Will. Yes, the great penalizer, Wilson Martin, here. I'm so happy to be here. I might not be the star of the show, but every buzz needs a Woody, am I right? That is probably (laughs) right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry, I have a three-year-old. We watch a lot of Toy Story. You just got to keep up with these references. What's really weird is I just pictured Will in one of those, like, uh, strongman unitards, like, in a carnival. (laughs) Just like, and he's known as the penalizer. I pictured him in just the, in just the woody, uh, the woody cowboy hat and chaps, and nothing else. Yeah, well, there's a snake in my. Well, I'm not wearing boots, boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm wearing. Uh, hey. Anyway, so this is this is our G-rated version of the show. Welcome, everyone. So, uh, <laughs> we do have a we do have a top tier Patreon and an OnlyFans. <laughs> the director's cuts. <laughs> oh man, yes. Uh, so hopefully, if you're still with us after episode one and you're becoming familiar with everything, you you, you got the idea of what we're doing here. You've learned our dynamic. I'm just a dude picking up knowledge, just enough to guide the discussion along with Doctor Rob because Doc is well, he's the Doc. You're here. Will, yeah, Will is your surrogate. He is the man who's hearing some of this stuff for the very first time. Maybe he knew some of it already. I don't know. We're going to find out as we go along. And uh, so last week, we covered a lot, a lot of the stuff historically, and we've probably already pissed off a lot of the wrestling historians. So for that, we are sorry. Still, the basics, I think we got them. One thing I'll say, though, thinking back as we record this, I did... Last time, I was thinking about this later, I did imply that pro wrestling, as we know it, strictly came from the USA. And I regretted saying that exactly because that was not my intention. I think I said it that way, but our European brothers and sisters had their own history and characters developing, and we most certainly will be diving in to those folks here shortly as uh, they cross paths with the story we're on right now, I I would assume, so... Yeah, and, well, and don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, you, you, there are a lot of historians out there that go through great p- pains to make the point that, to make a point really that nobody's saying that 
you know, pro wrestling as we know it today is distinct from pancreation or from the wrestling that you might have seen discussed in the Bible or seen in the ancient Greek, uh, you know, ancient Olympics and all that. Rob, nobody's arguing, you know. Rob, actually, I'm glad you said that because I don't want to, I don't want to walk all over you as I'm apt to do on this show, but Mm. I do want to say another thing I wanted to tackle with you right up top is that when I was perusing my pro wrestling FAQ today, as you all know, we're using that as a major source. Also, the comic book story of professional wrestling amongst hundreds of other things. I was on the Wrestling Observer today. and so, But we, we love to give Mr. Solomon credit for the pro wrestling FAQ, Aubrey Sitterson and Chris Moreno credit for the comic book story of professional wrestling. Both those books give us a great way to outline this discussion, I think. Anyway... My point being, when I was perusing Pro Wrestling FAQ today, I learned from Rob, and I've been highlighting and notating in my book now. I've just gotten over it, and I've just started scribbling. And uh, our friend Brian Solomon in that book tends to lean into the fact that at at one point early on in the book, he, he says many will attempt to connect today's pro wrestling to maybe too far in the past. To quote, he says... In a business based on deception and misinformation, one of the greatest bits of misinformation was the often stated claim that the pro wrestling business developed out of the ancient wrestling traditions dating back to Roman and Greek times and even earlier. Promoters and well-intentioned historians often pointed to the practices of the Egyptians, the venerated Grecian champion Milo, and even the biblical tale of Jacob and the angel, the first ladder match. Nevertheless, despite such bold claims, the origins of the professional wrestling business are not to be found there. Mm. Now, per this bit of info, although we're certainly delving into Mr. Solomon's opinion on where the one true sport began today, thanks to our first episode, we may now officially fall into the category of, quote unquote, well-intentioned historians. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Dr. Rob. Well, again, I think that it's like, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian and this is not going to have much meaning to a lot of you, but there, there are people out there that, you know, Presbyterians are traditionally re- regarded as Calvinists. We in the tradition, the philosophical and theological tradition of John Calvin, who argued for the famous five points, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Well, a lot of people will say, yeah, but. You know, the problem is there are too many there. I, I just don't like hyper Calvinism. And then I'm sitting I'm thinking like, I've never known a hyper Calvinist. I've never met a hyper Calvinist. I can't think of one theologian I describe as a hyper Calvinist. So going back to the great Brian Solomon, by the way, his scholarship, scholarship is impeccable. I just don't see anybody out there who, if you look at wrestling, the way we've defined it, the, the fact that it's an athletic sport, and a form of performance art in which two or more prize fighters engage in a simulated combat under predefined stipulations in order to reach a pre-established goal and to further along a narrative. I don't find anybody who's saying that that existed in ancient Greece and, and Rome and Egypt. The point is, when wrestling developed, it did not develop on a tabula rasa. It did not develop devoid of a whole tradition of combat sports. It's clearly, it's just so intuitive that it's informed by all of that tradition. That's why we even call it wrestling, because they drew back to what they were referring to it as in ancient times. So no one's, I just don't think no one's really making that claim that, oh, this is the same thing. If you, if you woke, you know, up today and got in the DeLorean and, you know, 6.21 gigawatts and found yourself back in 23 BC, that you would be seeing a wrestling match the way we see it. We're not, but 
the tradition that becomes pro wrestling inherited all that. It did not just, no one just woke up one day and said, Hey, I've got a great idea. Let's start competing, you know, tell a narrative, maybe throw in a fixed stare to, so that we can gain some prize fight money and work the crowd and this and that. No, they borrowed from a very thick and developed tradition throughout humanity. I mean, you know, me and my brother, since my earliest, my earliest memories of my brother were of he and I fighting, just play fighting, just, just, just horse playing, you know, competitively trying to outmaneuver each other. And then of course we got, we got into pro wrestling, but that is a human imperative. It's, it's, it's written in our genes. So I think that no one is saying, we're certainly not saying that pro wrestling is the ancient sport of wrestling. It's not, it's distinctive. You're not going to see something like, I mean, what we see today as pro wrestling is even different from what it was in the 1950s. But no one's going to go back and say 1950 pro wrestling wasn't pro wrestling. It was pro wrestling. In the 1800s, in the 1700s, you had a sport called wrestling in which people competed, sometimes for prizes, and uh, they developed rivalries and feuds. And it was the it was the best thing was to be the toughest guy on the block. And that goes all the way back to ancient times. So, yes, wrestling is rooted. Oh, it's most definitely rooted in the, the dawn of humanity, but it is certainly distinct as well. So again, Brian, I think Solomon there is making an argument that he's arguing against something that no one is arguing for really. Yeah. I, I think it's just semantics. I mean, it's just uh, the, I think we're about to hit today on where we think like pro wrestling as we know it. And what he's saying also is like, this is where it really, really began. Like, the direct line goes back to, but I, I feel justified that in episode one, we hit on that other stuff. It's like, yeah, this is drawing from something in the past. It's just, there was a quote. I think, I think he actually used it in his book talking about God. I wish I could remember right off the top of my head. I'm sure I'll stumble back across it. And maybe it was later on, but that the same way that Shakespeare had plays with huge masks and that sort of thing to hit the person 30 rows back, you know, so they could get what was going on. And wrestling is still drawing from that. You know, I don't think anybody's saying that, you know, it's directly Shakespeare, but it's, it's, there, there are things it's drawing upon, I guess. Is right. It's in, it's in the same vein. I like to conceive of it. And I think I make this point later. You got to conceive of, of wrestling. And especially when we get to like title lineage, when we start to see the emergence of titles as a gimmick or as a selling point in the 1860s, you got to think of it like as a, a, a series of concentric circles, like the sun. You got the sun in the middle and then the rays going out. And the farther away you get, the less pure you are. But you got to think of it in reverse order, okay? Wrestling is more like the emanating rays going inward, working towards the nuclear, the nuclear center, which is modern pro wrestling. It's borrowing from this wealth of tradition, not even, even wrestling. I mean, from all forms of martial arts. And, you know, we've got a friend, a very dear friend of our show, Front Row, who studies multiple forms of martial arts, including pancreation. And, you know, he will tell you that, no, it's not pro wrestling. It's not the same thing. It's not axiomatically identical. But there's no doubt that there's some, some cultural exchange there going on. And wrestling inherited a great ancient tradition, a beautiful tradition, and turned it into something 
unique and singularly different in its own thing. So, Will, are you still with us? I know we we've we've rambled on. How you feel it over there? You feeling good about all? Oh, this? I'm great. I, I was actually while you guys were were talking, was downloading my digital copy of the comic book history of pro wrestling, so I could have that as a as a reference as we talk. So you guys are good. Yeah, we don't get too far in it this way because we do dive a little bit deeper this time. But it it does make I think I was telling Rob this today that it makes a really good framework for the timeline of pro wrestling. So it gives us some ideas. We're going to spend a little bit more time in the carnival section today. And with the guy we hinted at last week, Martin Farmer Birds, we'll get there to him. Rob, I'm going to let you lead us in into the next part of this as we get into what Mr. Solomon considers the first part of wrestling. But before we do that, just real quick, I wanted to read you this thing I happened to find. And it's from an interview with Rowdy Roddy Piper. So we can toss this up to some more modern fans in the interview. He's talking to a guy who's it's like for a TV show he was doing at the time or something, but somehow the subject comes up. He asked the guy, well, you know how like pro wrestling started, right? And the guy says, yeah, I think so. Like carnivals or something like that. And Roddy Piper says, and this is a quote from Rowdy Roddy Piper. Just picture the carnival pulls into town. One that looks like Little House on the Prairie. And the covered wagons would come through and there'd be the bearded lady and the strong man and some animals. And then there'd be the wrestler. And so the night before the carnival on Saturday, there'd be people at bars. And the people from the carnival would find out who the tough guys were. And they'd walk up and they'd start talking up their wrestler. And so in the afternoon, the next day, everybody comes down and some local guy would want to take him on. And it costs like a nickel or something. And if you won, you got 50 cents. And the wrestler would get him in a hold. And there's this hold we call the sugar hold. But it's a hold in which it makes all the blood rush to your head and blood comes out your eyes, nose, ears, etc. But it does he doesn't pin him. So the wrestler would catch him in this hold and slap him on the ribs and it would make the guy start screaming. Well, the crowd would get upset and angry. All of a sudden, a guy would jump up from out of the crowd and say, hey, I'll take you on. And then the promoter would come out and say, whoa, 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 whoa. And uh, the wrestler would like, you got to do it in character, Gary. I know. I I can't do it. Hold on now. I'll take (laughs) you on, boy. Hold on. I'll take you on. And the promoter would come out and he'd say, whoa. And the wrestler would let the guy go. And the promoter would say, well, hold on now, sir. My guy just fought. You come back tonight and take him on. And then they'd all come back that night. But the guy who stood up, he was part of the carnival. And everyone would come back, and they'd all pay another nickel. And that, that's how pro wrestling started. And that's called marketing. And it's been (laughs) going on since the dawn of time. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Hold on now. You can't say that the marketing that they did at the dawn of time is the same as they did now, Will. <laughs> well, it's, it's evolved oh, slightly. It's evolved <laughs> slightly. But the, the, the principle is the same. We got to entice people. We got to make them want to come back. That was, that's a, that was a pretty uh, uh, exciting telling, retelling of that scenario, Gary. I would go back. I'd pay another nickel. Of course, what right. would that be in, in our money? Like 20 bucks? Yeah, something, something like, like that, that, probably. Yeah, a week's so, wages. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, so, but I thought it was uh, for Roddy Piper. I don't know how many times he told that story, but I thought it was a really nice summation of pro wrestling, like <laughs> just well, and, the and idea of what and, it is. And that's how it went from you know a, a a tough guy competition to you know somewhat of a commercial event, you know that could could be lucrative but also entertaining. 
Yeah. And you got there contained. I mean, we, t- we, we have to s- distinguish between the incidents of wrestling, you know, the, the context, the storylines that are, that are co- going on right now versus the, the, you know, the essence of re- the essentials. And he, he, he nailed it right there on the head. Roddy Piper, the, the great one himself. You draw the comparison even to today. I mean, that, you know, you joke about the marketing being different, but again, it's the same principle. It's the same reason why you watch Monday Night Raw or Dynamite or something like that. And as it goes off the air, the, the one thing they want you to be thinking is, by God, I got to watch next week. I got to see how this plays out, you know? And so they always leave stuff up in the air hanging. So, I mean, this this kind of cliffhanger finish goes all the way back to to the olden times. Olden times. I like how you said that. Speaking of well, olden, so we have already established to move further along with our narrative here. We've already established that wrestling has been a natural and common form of human interaction and competition since the dawn of history. It's essential to our being. If anybody who has a, a kid sister or a kid brother knows that one of the first things you do as kids is you wrestle each other. You just fight. That's what you do. There's always been a human impulse, if only a friendly competitive one, to impose the will physically upon one another. There's something about us that makes us want to body slam each other, to put our brother or sister in a chokehold. It's just in our name. It's a, we're hardwired. But, you know, as industrialization increased and lifespans and standards of living improved, and as people not so preoccupied with simple survival and eking out an existence anymore, began to have more time and more resources to be inventive, to create, to experience recreation, professional sports, and other pastimes became more and more a feature of human life and culture. We have the rise of boxing, baseball, you know, blues, jazz, rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. Wrestling in this context emerged. Now, according to our friend Brian Solomon, there exists evidence that collar and elbow style wrestling was already in practice as a form of competitive recreational pursuit in colonial America, guys. This is like pre-1776. You already had a mainstay commonly understood and expectation. And there's already wrestling was already in the dialogue. It was already part of the vernacular. And when someone said wrestling or, hey, we're going to have we've got a wrestling fight going on, people in their mind would have a mental image of what was taking place. And uh, so what we're going to do now is I, I want to trace this emergence of the sport going from the, the ancestors, the, 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 the concepts that were inherited that though distinct from pro wrestling that were inherited from ancient times into the, the form of pro wrestling that would be recognizable to us today. And I'm breaking it down like a good Baptist minister into three major points. Okay. We're going to talk about wrestling as the carnival fanfare sport, wrestling as a regimental sport, and wrestling as the arena sport. Real quick before you get into this, as the audience surrogate here, can you give a brief explanation when you say things like collar and elbow style? We talk about the various styles. Give me kind of like a a one paragraph definition of of what you mean when you say collar and elbow. We're going to define collar and elbow. We're going to paint the picture. Nay, we're going to reenact it. On today's episode, me and <laughs> me and Gary. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we need background music, <laughs> but like some but renaissance, but reverse. Like, <laughs> so so let's it's let's sixty nine form. Anyway, what's happening here? I I just want to say this. Uh, one one of the things I love here is essentially the Doc and Brian Solomon and Pro Wrestling FAQ and everybody. They try to put this delicately. And as a heftier man myself, I just would like to go ahead and say, th- these are the facts. What what they're saying, 
to put it, you know, in, in the layman's terms, is that in the late 18th century, it brought the Industrial Revolution, and your average dude, to quote Enzo Amore, he became S-A-W-F-T, soft. And uh, now, granted, I'm not knocking anybody, but this is the first time in forever where people really were starting to choose athletic pursuits and physical activity as a means of like conditioning, rather like for a healthy lifestyle that started becoming a thing instead of like, Hey, we need you to carry 600 pounds of uh, molten steel from one place to another and risk burning yourself alive. We're working on a way for you to not be Freddy Krueger to your grandchildren. <laughs> like now you can, you can lift heavy things because you want to instead. So now some people are choosing to just stay tough automatically. It's, it's like not because they had to mine coal with their teeth I'm saying they were like, they just wanted to be healthy, tough guys. And wrestling happened to be a, a great way to do this. You got an amazing shape and it, you didn't have to have equipment anyway, but that's the, that's kind of where I was going. It's like in the, in the, in the movie Gettysburg, you've got some Confederate generals there sitting around a campfire and George, you know, George Pickett is opining about the inherent and constitutional right of secession. He draws this analogy about the gentleman's club and then, Another Virginia named Pender looks at him and he says, and, and this is what I'm going to say to you, Gary. He says, George, you sure have a way of trivializing the momentous and complicating the obvious. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, man. I'm just joking with you. If I was you say, like, I thought I laid it out nicely. I was just pointing yeah, out. You done, is- hey, you done good, man. It's like, it's look, look, if you, I'm, a, I am a, a hist, a, I'm not, I wouldn't say a formally trained historian, but my passions are in history in multiple forms. And if you look at like ancient Native American traditions in North America, you go from the Paleo to the Archaic to the Woodland to the Mississippian, and as time goes on through these traditions, you'll find that the the thing that really emerges that distinguishes the various traditions is the arrival of things like beautiful pottery, art decoration, culture, writing, literature. And you don't find this at all in the paleo tradition. Why? Because they were concerned about fending off the saber-toothed tiger. They were spending too much time trying to live. They didn't have time to delve into, you know, aesthetics, beauty for its own sake. And so you see a parallel here in the 19th century as people are no longer eking out a subsistence existence. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody was living in the lap of luxury, but, you know, standards of living because of the industrial revolution, we're increasing exponentially across the, the Western world. And because of that, now that I'm not, sur- I'm not just so concerned that, heck, when am I going to get my next meal? Now I have time to go out to the traveling fanfare or carnival. I have time to, to engage in physical fitness and wrestling emerged as a form of physical fitness training, you know, where, where it was a healthy pursuit that boys on the farm could engage in and whatnot. But yeah, so as, as, as culture becomes better and wealthier and more literate and whatnot, you have the emergence of wrestling. I always, I hate the stigma that's attached to wrestling as wrestling being this vulgar craft sport. And I, I get it. I know why that that's the case, but wrestling, the emergence of wrestling is, is parallel to the emergence of refined culture in America. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not contradictory to it. It's not antithetical to it. It is consistent with it. Wrestling is consistent with culture, okay? So we we have, first of all, wrestling as the carnival or the fanfare. Called the carnival in North America, called the traveling fanfare in the UK, and I'm not sure what they called it in France, something like voulez-vous 
Voulez-vous or something like that. In, That's in probably France. it. Or yeah. in Germany, they would call it Ich komme aus den Vereinigten Staaten Boring Cumbency or something like that. That felt that too real. Seems, that yeah. seems long. What was that, Klingon? Is that Klingon? No, nah, that's German, man. And, and the <laughs> translation is this. In American, or in, in English, it's, hey, daddy, take us to the fair. In German, it's, ich komme aus den Vereinigten Staaten, wo den kommen sie, stein nat zu einander. Yeah, and you're wearing I'm leather kidding. when you yeah. say it. Hey, daddy. <laughs> hey, daddy, take us to the fair. Nein! Nein! <laughs> Let us ride Space Mountain, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right let's 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 stay on track guys we we got things to tend to okay the traveling carnival emerged i'm almost simultaneously with the fanfare in europe these things happened simultaneously a lot to do with the exchange of culture across the atlantic ocean between europe and north america and as early as the late 1700s we know that a common feature of the traveling carnival with some form of wrestling or physical scrappling or scuffling, which inevitably gave rise to gambling, probably at first legitimate gambling, where you're betting on, hey, this guy, I bet my money on this guy, I bet my money on this guy. But eventually, of course, people get smart to the fact that, hey, there's money to be made here if we maybe, you know what, tell you what, let's go on the road together. I'll take this first fall. You take the next one. We'll just keep them guessing. And you see the rise of gambling, you know, and fixing the sport. But I wanted to point out that even in the early uh, 1800s, late 1700s, you already had the emergence of a celebrity-like status with certain carnival wrestlers. And one in particular is a guy that Brian Sullivan points out is William Richardson. Probably the greatest celebrity of the traveling carnival circus. And from 1800. To 1809, allegedly, William Richardson went undefeated. There is an excerpt, and I'm, I'm looking at my iPad here, but there's an excerpt from a book entitled, I love this title, man. This is so charming. Get this. This book is called Wrestling and Wrestlers, Biographical Sketches of Celebrated Athletes of the Northern Ring, to which is added notes on, on bull and badger baiting. <laughs> so you got <laughs> <laughs> Bull and badger baiting. But it, <laughs> I don't know, man. But, but <laughs> I badger bait at least once before I could go to sleep. At oh, night. gosh. Yeah. Just uh, I, I, let me read a little excerpt from this. He said, uh, when Blackwood's magazine states that William Richardson of Codbeck, the winner of 240 wrestling trophies or belts, was better entitled than old Howard of Castle Docker himself to the cognomen of belted will. And I don't know what any of that means. We need Nick Aulis in here to translate this English for us, this <laughs> King's English. But I wanted to point out that it says here that in Northern England, the carnival wrestler William Richardson wins his first wrestling match in 1798 and from 1801 to 1809 went undefeated. William Richardson. I got to yeah. read more about this guy. No, I know it's, it's it's funny. You go back on these things and you start hearing names. Like I, I will be the first to admit, I didn't know him before any of this. But so so to connect it to even what I was saying before is like there's there's these guys that that do this as sport. There was the stuff we mentioned last episode, like rough and tumble, and like the colonial people that would have ways to settle differences. But wrestling had become sort of a sport. And, and, and Rob, to something you said that you, I forget the word you used, but to not perceive it as uncouth, like it almost seemed like it's, it's not, it's not even much different than in some ways, like nightdom, you know, like it, 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 
it was a way to just test your metal and it was a fun like sport to have it was just a just as a gentleman like get to get in there and have the rough and tumble and well not rough and tumble you're not gouging out ice but like the these guys were just trying to see who the, the best dude was and and but it was out of sport and out of fitness and it, it become more of a an activity a leisure activity in sort of a way but now the best of those guys they would it graduating to become hookers not like will's mom but like the term for legit badass people uh, <laughs> the, uh i'm sorry you're, you're lucky my mom doesn't listen to this hookers in the in these terms would be badass people you don't want to mess with for instance rob mentioned william richardson and he was one of the first big dogs traveling with the carnivals taking on audience members that sort of thing i mean that was just a natural progression it's not just it's not unlike like they'd have the festivals where the knights would like joust and do all these things it feels like like you'd have your tough guy and you're like hey man this guy can make a lot of money he's the baddest man around let's come in and see if your local guy can beat him it sounds a lot like what we know about wrestling going forward and now to do that though in this case you had to be able to hold your own and feel comfortable doing that you had to feel pretty good about your ability and and now there's question and we'll get into it about how much of it always was legit but there's a good probability that William Richardson was able to whip that ass if he needed to, and uh, nobody was worried about him. And it brought different places had different rules, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now this gets into Will's question earlier. What distinguishes, say, collar and elbow style wrestling from the two other major forms? What we're going to call Greco-Roman. And what we're going to call catch is catch can or just catch style or loose style. Encyclopedia Britannica describes the three major varieties. By the way, each of these varieties have hosts of sub varieties, but these sub varieties are going to be categorized into three major forms. One called belt and jacket, which is what we call collar and elbow belt and jacket. Same thing. Catch hold, which what we're catch hold is not the same as catch as catch can catch hold would be more analogous to Greco-Roman and then what Britannica calls loose style that we're going to call catch style or catch as catch can. So let's look at each of those real quick. All right. The collar and elbow tradition is a distinctively Irish tradition. It's no mystery why this becomes such a prominent feature of colonial American wrestling. Why is that? Where was a lot of the major immigration flow coming from? Germany, the UK, and Ireland, right? So collar and elbow wrestling, also called jacket or jacket and belt or belt and jacket wrestling, is characterized primarily by a lack of ground fighting. Okay, you're going to lock up. By the way, the collar and elbow tie-up is the direct descendant of this. Most every match that we see begins with that collar and elbow tie-up, you know, like I'm doing right here. This is exactly how it goes. Boom. We're fine. Yeah, there you go. Oh, you got me. <laughs> so, but distinctive to this form of wrestling is that you do not touch the ground. If any part of the body besides the feet touches the ground, you lose the match. So the uh, the object of this match was to was to lock up your opponent and suit sub and to force him into submission by making him touch the ground. That was essentially the tap out. Okay, a knee, arm, elbow, face, whatever. If he's on the ground, he loses. Because of the large Irish diaspora throughout the United States, this form of wrestling was imported and widely transmitted throughout the continent. There was a good chance 
if certain other things didn't happen, that this would have been the form that would take root in what we now know as pro wrestling. Okay. Col again, color and elbow influencers are still here, but even though this would not become the major form of wrestling, it still exists. There are still collar and elbow organizations, collar and elbow leagues that are legit shoot leagues. And by shoot, what do I mean by shoot there, Will? Uh, you mean fake. And I'm doing air quotes. Nope. That's not what I mean. Shoot. I mean real. Oh, real. Yeah. Yes. Not fake. Kayfaber work would be, would be the fake or the, 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 Sutterfuge, you know, the deceit. The shoot is the I, real thing. I, I represent the less informed portion of the audience. <laughs> now, you know what you, you, know, I, I mean, you, knew, you knew. You were thinking something else. You know what shoot means. So when someone gives a shoot interview, gosh, man, I hate talking wrestling terminology because I know a lot of wrestlers like are irritated by, you know, this is their area but yeah, we're gonna yeah but I, but i think in this conversation like i i'm the same way when we're talking about the current product and we're trying to critique it but i mean when in this scenario where we're talking about the history and you know i think it's important to use the right terminology and and stuff that accurately describes it so i'm with you but i think in this scenario yeah i think we're if good you were to watch I, it, I was gonna get into this as you as you I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit anyway but well, finish off your styles there. Let, let's go through some of your okay. styles and then we can talk a little bit more about that because I'm with Will too. Like I felt awkward even like thinking this out today. I was like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't want to piss anybody off. I know we're not wrestlers, but yeah. anyway. It's hard It's hard to, to get to – you don't want to presume to, to look behind the veil, but I think we, we have been blessed and we have earned a, a status among some 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 major players, and I think we've earned some trust that we're going to treat this sport with respect primarily. And that's what they want, man. They really just want they what the wrestlers want is they want you to respect the business. Don't just think any old person can do it. So don't talk like you're one of the boys if you haven't earned that prerogative, you know. So I think we've earned some trust here. And you know, a shoot that when when you hear the word shoot. Like a shoot interview. If you Google shoot interview, you're going to get an interview of a wrestler and he's going to be talking about behind the scenes stuff. Real heat, which means like real anger in competition, real animosity that goes on behind the stage in any business. I mean, I'm, I'm one of five principals that work at my high school. There's heat sometimes between us. We're human beings, right? So that happens. But anyway, there is a shoot collar and elbow league that still exists today. You can win you know, collar and elbow championships. Historically, a collar and elbow match would be open-ended. It could last for hours and hours. And today, you've got a league that exists that where, where matches are limited basically to five minutes. And they go in there and they wrestle a five-minute round, collar and elbow style. You lock up. No part of the body can touch the ground. And that is actually how they do it, and it's real. It's There's no acting about it, all right? So that's the first tradition, and it was very prominent in North America. Not as prominent... But certainly prominent in Europe was the Greco-Roman style. This is circulating in the in the European continent, primarily in France. And the thing that's, that separates this from the others is, although touching the ground is not necessarily going to eliminate you in this style, you cannot execute a maneuver below the waist. All maneuvers must be executed waist and above. And we see versions of this today in in your collegiate wrestling and folk style wrestling although there is like leg riding and that kind of stuff greco-roman wrestling still exists we know that i mean it's 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 beyond debate and then you have the third style this style is prominent in the united kingdom and north america this becomes one of the two major american traditions 
alongside collar and elbow, and that is the catch style. Catch as catch can, or uh, sometimes referred to simply as loose style. And why is it called loose style? Because it's like Gary's mama. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, <laughs> no, I was going to say, oh, right. I was going to say, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> no, she just like, she's like a spider monkey when she's like wrestling. Like she's just, she's like loosey goosey. She's all over the place. She's wiry. That's my mama. There you go. Loose. And and like your mama, <laughs> this oh style is, is a classic grappling style. Uh, and sweet and, and caring <laughs> and just would give. Can cook a great meatloaf. Right. Character, yeah. And characterized by the use of submission holds. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Nine. Uh, also he called, does know my mama. <laughs> also called. Oh, mommy, can you take me to the fair? Hooked. Yeah. Madam, Madam, <laughs> Madam Horn. <laughs> Mistress Horn. Some call her. Some call her. Mistress of the hooks. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my god. A submission hold is sometimes called a hook, or it was called a hook. So your catch style wrestling is going to be much more violent, much more prone to uh, result in injury, sometimes very serious injury. And according to the 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 publication Submission Wrestling Arts, catch style was developed formerly by a man named John Graham Chambers in Little Bridge Grounds, West Brompton, in Greater London, that's in southeastern England, at some point in the 1870s. And in catch wrestling, nearly every hold is permissible, except for one. Anyone take take a guess? Strangleholds. Boom, the stranglehold. Why is that important for professional wrestling? Because in the development of character, you're going to have a tradition of wrestlers that call themselves the strangler, Strictly because their moniker is built around the idea that they are rule breakers or heels. So, um, can't have that. <laughs> can't have Stranglehold, Although, Stranglehold is the best Ted Nugent song. There's not too many I, Ted Nugent references in this show. I was about like to say, did, did, does Rob just not like that song? No, I do. You, you know who else is a bad you know joke? Who or, you know who's a huge Ted Nugent fan? Who? Nick Aldis, man. Nick Aldis has one of the most informed rock and roll minds ever. You know how I know this? Because I don't know if you guys were Dio fans at all. For you, Because you camp out outside his bedroom window. That has nothing to do with the fact that <laughs> that's besides <laughs> the <laughs> That's, that's way the down on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're doing an episode of Piper's Notes, and we do, we do a Dio cover. And I was like, you know, you know, Nick Aldis is 34 years old, man. I mean, this is it to me when you're listening to Dio, people today who know Dio have to be either my age or have fathers who had really good music taste. I don't know if either one of you even listened to Dio. Probably oh yeah, probably will. Gary well, I'm a music guy. I mean, I grew yeah, up I was, I've been I've been playing guitar since I was 12. So I mean, yeah, you, you, you don't you don't play guitar for that many years and not know who Dio is. Right. So we do yeah, this. I know Dio, Dio's feed wagon. Yeah, yeah, dude. Dio <laughs> Sanders. He used to play for the Braves. Heard it from a man who. Heard it from a man who. I love Dio Speedwagon. Dio Speedwagon. We do yeah. this episode of Piper's Notes, and it our our back in the early iterations of Piper's Notes, the centerpiece was we'd review a music video. 
Will still has yet to come on. He's yet to accept our invitation. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, so we have Nick Aldis on, world's heavyweight champion now. And we're going to like, hey, man, I picked this video. It's a cover because they have this scene in this old English town. And we're going to do this well. He goes on. He's like, uh, Dr. Stinson. Dr. Stinson, do you know? Do you know who wrote the original version of this song? <laughs> wow, you just killed your whole relationship with Nick Aldis with that. Now, because you're cutting Nick. this piece out. Now, he didn't say it like that. What he did say was was funny. He's like, the my version of the YouTube video has ads to it. And I was like, I was like, hey, champ. He was gracious. He was fantastic. But my version of the uh, video has commercials. You know, you got the nine second ad that can. I said, I said champ. You know, before we start, you might want to let it play for nine seconds. And he goes, he goes, Stinson. I've got, I've got YouTube premium. And I'm like, of course you do champ. <laughs> of course you do. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, he, he goes on to give us a little talk about Dio, Ronnie James Dio. And, and he, he loves wrestling, but he loves Ted Nugent. He loves classic rock. He's very, very educated and versed in uh, rock and roll. Of course he is. He's a world champion. Anyway, of all those threes, you got the collar. I thought, I thought we were going to get like five episodes in before he just started kissing Nick Aldis's ass. And his right here in episode two. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think we'd get that far. That was wishful thinking on your part. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Is that what y'all are calling it? Ass kissing? I thought we'd at least get to like next episode where we start talking about more like title unifications and that sort of thing. But uh, anyway. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Anyway, of the three styles, <laughs> collar and elbow, Greco-Roman, and catches catch can, Will, unmute yourself. Here's a quiz question. Of those three styles, okay. collar and elbow, Greco-Roman, and catch style, which style is going to take root in America and become the wellspring of what we know now as pro wrestling? Loose. He's like, shoot. <laughs> 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 I didn't know there were going to be test questions. Yes. What is yeah. You're all right. It is the loose style. It is yeah. catch Coaches style. Catch can. Catches catch can that gains the greatest level of popularity in the United States and the United Kingdom. And that is where uh, professional wrestling is born in the Western tradition of the United States, the Anglo tradition of the United States and the United Kingdom. And though other disciplines, Greco Roman, collar and elbow, and catch all influence the modern sport more or less. It is catch style that evolves into the, comp, the the modern spectacle that we know as wrestling. So that is wrestling as the carnival fanfare sport. Okay, I um, love that, Rob. You're a brilliant man. I wanted I wanted I want to double back if I could real quick, just so so we did. We promised that we cover this, and I want to say this. We're pushing through a lot of this. And we're going to go into more detail on a lot of this stuff later, I promise. So if you ever feel like we're just like brushing over something that deserves more time, first of all, feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. But also, there's probably plans that we're going to do that. The During the carnival, carnival times, there was a very specific way that things were done. And the art of all of this was in its infancy. But the stuff that we mentioned earlier, besides the different forms of wrestling, there was also a deception that was there sometimes that was starting to formulate. And another word perhaps for that would be kayfabe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so which probably I think kayfabe 
I think I sent this to you earlier, Rob, deserves its own like mini episode, just if we're going to get into it on what it all is. But to summarize, kayfabe's, when you hear the word kayfabe, it's essentially the code of secrecy. And I'm going to reference here because I had it pulled up in the pro wrestling FAQ. I pulled it up here. And this is, this is how it's defined here. The all-important code of secrecy used by those in the business to shield the public from the so-called tricks of the trade. By staying within kayfabe, wrestling personalities pretend that the matches are competitive and that the storylines are real. To break kayfabe means to reveal the event's scripted nature. The sanctity of kayfabe has seriously eroded in recent years. As a verb, kayfabe would be used as to convince someone that something is real when it is actually simulated. An example would be, are you kayfabing me? The, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is just because we kind of we kind of hit on this in just a minute ago. And, and some say that kayfabe like comes from like carny speak, the carnival programs. This is where you'd start to see this. And it, and it goes back to what Rob was talking about before, like where gambling becomes involved in some of these matches. It goes back to that Roddy Piper quote from up top that maybe every once in a while, I mean, you wanted your guy to be good. You wanted your guy to be able to handle himself. But sometimes you also wanted... When money starts becoming involved, you start thinking about the best ways to make more money. And to do that is you get people impassioned about what's happening. Not just Joe Blow off the street wrestling this guy who says he's good. Maybe it matters more if Joe Blow off the street has a real reason to want to beat the hell out of this guy who's the best at what he does. And so... In, in carnival circuits, and Rob, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but there there was discussion in pro wrestling FAQ about that kayfabe possibly come, came as a bastardization of the word be fake. That it was carny speak, carny like carnival barkers and that sort of thing. They had the thing called carny speak, and carny speak is like different ways of speaking to like not let everybody in on what you're talking about, and mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole other thing that could probably go in a kayfabe episode. Yeah. But, uh, essentially, I don't know. I'm not going to lie. I don't know anything for a fact. Like I said, another episode. But here's where you start to see these terms evolve. For, for instance, Rob said shooter or, or shoot earlier. And in these instances, wrestlers were expected to be quote unquote straight shooters or shooters. And this initially evolves from like another carnival tactic where there would be these shooting games where like somebody has to aim and shoot something and people would bend the pellet gun barrel and you'd have the guys that were set up that could nail things, but then the marks quote unquote marks, the ignorant people that they brought in to play the game would try to shoot and the barrels bent a little bit and they, no matter what they do, they can't win. So shooters were the legit part, of, like the legit talent. They were the legit great guys. And so anyway, that's where you get the term shoot or shooters they were the guys that could handle themselves. So the best of those were the hookers who knew how to hook their opponents and incapacitate them if they had to with ease. These, these are the guys that when you weren't sure if things could get reversed on you, nobody reversed it on a hooker. A hooker was like the best. Like a hooker would choke you out. No matter how the matches went, despite whatever, the hooker would win his match when it was time to win his match. Anyway. And, if, and if not, if he was not going to, if for somehow you had a guy that was tougher than the hooker, 
they had another plan in there. They'd have some guy that come in and hit you in the head with a hammer or something to save the talent. So they had a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan four to take care of all that. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> legit, that was some stories uh, I think we both saw like that, you know, they'd wrestle you through the curtain and somebody nail you in the freaking head and then you roll back out and they're like all googly-eyed and they get pinned or submitted mm. or whatever. But, but a lot of times as this progressed because of the way that things work is like there's gambling involved. So that there's ideas of like, we need somebody on the other side of this that's in on it too. The guy that's going to lose a lot of times is is a guy that they that's a plant. So because this match needs to last this long to build up the, the payout, you know, like the, yeah. to keep it going. And so... You know, you get two shooters in there, and they look legit. They 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 handle business. And anyway, no we'll we'll get all into that probably on a whole other episode. But no matter how the matches went at the carnivals, despite real or not, whatever the sport started catching on, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and and it grew perhaps to more than a circus tent could handle, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it grew so big that the only thing that could stop the growth of it would be something unthinkable like a civil war. Boom. Guess what happened? <laughs> <laughs> a civil war, okay? And uh, from 1860 to 1865, of course, the nation was divided. We had sectionalism ramping up for decades, and the, 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 the country was divided heavily between those who believed in a cotton republic supported by slave labor and those that didn't up north and uh, the country was legally and formally divided along those lines and the civil war was inevitable. It was going to happen and it did happen. And when it did happen, and by the way, let me, let me point out something else that Solomon says in pro wrestling FAQ that on the, on the eve of the civil war, you had traveling, traveling wrestlers that could earn substantial winnings and even make a regular living from being a traveling wrestler. So you have, wrestling as a mainstay sport that was commonly recognized it would not have been unfamiliar to anybody in 1860 to say yeah we're going out to the wrestling show at the carnival everybody would have known what you were talking about at that at that point it almost sounds like tribute to the troops was happening back at civil war times that's right man you got the uso coming out you got bob hope you got the wwe bringing in the talent except in this case the soldiers are bringing in their own interests and pastimes now I am a former soldier. I'm a veteran myself of the global war on terror. And I remember being, you know, in uniform, being in an Arctic tent in Fort Wainwright, Alaska, and wrestling my buddies, you know, and we had our own little platoon championship and the top dog would win. We had a belt that we made out of cardboard and aluminum foil. And that was the trophy, boy. You had that belt. You were the chosen. That was our, the chosen from the, the chosen reservoir campaign in, in the North, in the Korean War. We had the chosen championship. And if you won this title, you were the top dog, man. And I remember there was a guy named Bill. I can't remember his first name, but he was a private Bellinger, big boy, just a mean infantry guy, born to be a warrior. And he was the champion. Bellinger was the, the chosen champion. Anyway, you had that going on in the 1860s when the Civil War broke out. As soldiers would get out and break out into camp, and a soldier will tell you there's a lot, you know, the, the 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 unofficial motto of the military is hurry up and wait. There's a lot of wait time, a lot of downtime while you're waiting for orders and the troop leading procedures to take root and all that. And as it happened, you have essentially the rise of the proto, what I'm calling 
the proto-territorial system arises as each regiment, not every regiment, but many regiments would have their champion. And then, of course, you would have the grand champion of all the regiments. So a regiment, by the way, is roughly a thousand men. A company is about a hundred men at full strength. Of course, in the thick of the Civil War, sometimes a regiment through attrition and, and casualties would be reduced to even less than a hundred. But a regiment essentially was a thousand men at full strength. And in these thousand men regiments, you would have regimental champions emerge. And the one that Solomon points out is a guy that I love, one of my favorite characters from the days of your Colonel James Hiram McLaughlin, who was the 26th New York Infantry Regiment champion. I also make the case in our Discord, follow our Discord, by the way, I make the case that the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship, the Omega Particle, the, the God Strand, is right here in <laughs> Colonel James McLaughlin. McLaughlin is the proto 10 pounds of gold sweet Charlotte title holder. He held the 26th New York Infantry Regiment Championship, but at the time he was not yet the highest in the pecking order. That belonged to George William Flagg, who claimed the interpromotional proto-territorial grand championship of the Army of the Potomac. How beautiful does that sound, guys? William George William Flag. I like to. I, I want to hear Gary cut a promo in the style of George William Flag, Grand Champion. In the style of George William Flag, Sir the Gary. George William Flag, the natural Sir George William Flag. The natural. <laughs> yeah, what would his My name? It's the natural George William Flag. Do I look like some kind of slack jawed idiot to you? I'm here to whip ass and take names. That's what I do. I stand for whipping ass and taking names. But what I'm going to do? Abolition. And abolition. Abolition. <laughs> I don't remember which side of my... I'm going to whip ass and take names. That's what I'm saying. I am... George the- William Flag, son. <laughs> say it again. You just got flagged. <laughs> George William Flag. I said George William Flag, boy. I'm the abolition contradiction because I'm going to face some man I'm George William Flag and I'm here to whip ass and take names <laughs> the abolition contradiction I'm Finn Men and enslaving you <laughs> what was his finisher? the flag staff oh yeah <laughs> that sounds- it all, yeah I was going to be the flagpole none of them sound no no I don't, you know, I don't know how threatening any of them sound, but <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm dying, I'm dying. When I'm finished with you, boy, I'll be at half mast. Wait, I'm gonna raise this flag straight up the pole. I can't hold on. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm here to whip ass and take names. I'm gonna. I, you know what? I'm gonna beat you up, son. That's what I'm saying. So he was the very first uh, <laughs> long promo. <laughs> in about a minute too long. Oh my gosh, man. George, we a flag. <laughs> this was the rise. This was, the, of course, the rise of the scripted promo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> their flag in line because he would just ramble. 
There was that one promo too. Boys, I tell you that what, was... Georgia's Georgia's feisty, but I don't think we're gonna move many tickets this way. <laughs> <laughs> the promoter was like, "Nah, that last promo he did make it disappear. The one where he referenced his soul, it's gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> From YouTube, Hulu, all that stuff. Oh gosh, my hole, boys! I'm gonna put your nose up my hole. <laughs> cut it, cut it, guys. That's guys. That's no, gonna... no, that's not cut. That we, we, we can't do that, son. Moss <laughs> Lincoln. Right. Lincoln's gonna be here, boy. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> My pole. <Ooh. laughs> All right. All right. Steadily, steadily wrestling migrate <laughs> from the carnivals to the saloons, to outdoor fairgrounds and fields. Instead of it being a traveling feature, it became a more static feature where you would have a regular promotion or a regular show that would stay in a town. And down there at, at, at Beckett's Field, we're going down there to Beckett's Field for the show Saturday night, you know, or next tomorrow night of an evening, we're going to go down there and see the show, the wrestling. George William Flag, boys! <laughs> George William Flag coming into town. Anyway, though it quickly gained a reputation as a more crass and violent form of entertainment, it continued to rise. And at this point, you see, because it is catch style that is catching on, participants are often badly injured, sometimes even killed. But for those who were successful, a fortune could be made from this. And Solomon, again, in FAQ, <clears throat> describes a match in 1873 in which McLaughlin, Colonel James Hiram McLaughlin, took home the, well, I don't know that he took home the winner's purse, but the winner's purse in that match was $4,000. Now, guys, $4,000 is a lot of money today. In that day, it was four times the annual salary. An annual salary for a, a skilled laborer in those days was about $1,000 a year. <clears throat> he won $4,000, or the winner, the winner's purse, was $4,000 for that one match. And that is their regimental sport. So we see this steady increase in influence, size, and prestige and importance and money. I was I was looking through here and like it was just interesting to me that like the that McLaughlin was winning like he was taking these titles like you're talking about, just like in combining them like for these regimented things. And uh, so I think you've got a case there, like as far as him going through and winning the American Collar and Elbow Championship. I beat because he beat Louis Ainsworth. It's like it's so crazy to look back at this history. There's like a whole thing: the American Greco-Roman Championship, the American Catches Catch Can Championship. This guy's like he's taking it. I don't know. I don't. I just. I don't know why I got off track here, but it was just blowing my mind looking like this title history of like these these regimented titles like you're talking about, this was a legit thing. And there were guys competing for it. And people as McLaughlin was working through and like winning these belts that boosted his purse because I mean, I mean the strict wrestling formula people wanted to see this is guy. This is the, this is the Goldberg of the civil war. <laughs> Gosh, stop, man. Oh Lord. You're right. <laughs> You're right, man. And it, it's funny because this is a good segue into the third phase of the development of the modern sport. It's the title. That's really the catalyst there. Okay. Now today <clears throat> it seems unthinkable to us that we, we are always talking about the lineage of the title. I mean, we are now in 851 days as of this recording, we're, in, we're recording this 
just for posterity's sake, we're recording this on February 17th. This is the 851st day, excuse me, of the reign of Nick Aldis. Okay. The reason we make that a big point is because reigns have lineages. They're rooted in history. Well, obviously in the 1860s, you don't have titles rooted in history. There are no lineages. In fact, titles were sometimes just mere gimmicks. You know, you put a trophy on somebody. Hey, hey, man, we're going into uh, Cade's Cove next week. It just so happens that Hiram McLaughlin is the Cade's Cove champion. They would invent a title, sometimes invent a tournament that never happened, a phantom championship that didn't really exist. And guys like Hiram McLaughlin had a collection of titles, some legit for sure, and some that were purely kayfabe, to use a term there. <clears throat> Some shoot titles, some kayfabe titles. I mean, just to throw in on, on that, I mean, like Bret Hart telling the story about Luthez telling him it was legit. It was shoot until the 20s. But you'll see people like Tim Hornbaker say like, well, I was shoot until occasionally in the 30s or something, I think. And then like Meltzer says like uh, in the 1860s, I bet that it was already, you know, it was it was kayfabe. And so wild, it's so wild for, for me to think about, you know, at its beginnings, you know, there were no titles. It was literally just prize. Well, I mean, not even prize fighting because there was no prize. The prize was just victory. Victory or the purse, yep. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's that's such a a crazy thing to think about now in this modern iteration of wrestling because everything is so title-centric. Everything revolves around the titles, what tier the title is, where you are in that title picture, and, you know, it, it's it's crazy to think about, you know, and, and you don't think about it unless you stop and actually examine it like we are, that there was a time when that wasn't a factor. It was literally just wrestling for the love of wrestling. Or yeah. or at least it, it, through a little bit of this, it would be almost like you're watching WrestleMania and, even, and you were just so into gambling that you were just like, I need to know who wins out of R-Truth and The Miz. I got R-Truth in three minutes. <laughs> Over the Miz with a leg drop. Like, it's like you're... All those have to got, be in place to get the winning, yeah. I got yeah. Gronkowski running in from the back. The Tim Hornbaker quote that Gary's referred to, I have it right here. It's actually spot on. It says, according to Tim Hornbaker, it is almost impossible to say definitively when it crossed over from being legit to being a performance. This is one of the biggest mysteries in the history of wrestling. This is going back to what we said in the last show about one of the charms of wrestling is similar to the charms of baseball and rock and roll. We don't really know. We're just guessing. There's a lot of shadow and ghosts here, you know, very haunted. So uh, pro wrestling, he says, <clears throat> was certainly genuine at times, even occasionally into the 1930s. But promoters learned in the latter stag stages of the 1800s that it was better to work a carefully crafted match full of excitement to make the crowd happy. And what? set up a rematch. And so there we have at some point in the late 1800s and early 1900s, we have that one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh essential characteristic of the modern sport. And that is the furtherance of a narrative to be pro wrestling in the modern sense. You have to have what will is always talking about on virtually every show storytelling. And, and so we have that, that, that come into existence, but I would love to know, you know, as we talk about this and we probably don't even know because there's, there may not be a lot of stories from the actual competitors, but 
you know, you've got to imagine when you get into to wrestling as a wrestler, I mean, you, you, you want to be a legitimate tough guy, right? And you want to go in there and, and, and establish yourself as uh, a tough guy who can beat someone up. You know, what was it like for them when that transition happened to, hey, we're going to actually create narratives and storylines. So, you know, at this particular night, you're actually going to lose. You're going to you're going to come out, you know, with the short straw. But don't worry, because next weekend you're going to get that back. You know, I mean, I, I really wonder the mentality of the actual wrestlers, like how how that transition looked for them. And I mean, probably ultimately, I would imagine it was about money. And if they knew like, well, I'm going to make money, you know, they didn't really care. And they were still going to, you know, get their get their receipts. But it's just such an interesting thought. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and again, going back to what Gary said, it's the title, the emergence of the title as a goal or as an aspiration, as a pecking order mechanism is critical to wrestling graduating from the carnival, from the regiment, from the saloon to the arena, which happens in the last three decades of the 1800s. By the way, just pointing this out, and I know Will, who's a big fan of the Intercontinental title, and I know you are too, Gary, we all know that Pat Patterson's Intercontinental Championship inaugural victory is a phantom victory. Now, I've seen an article that they've got footage about Pat Patterson winning this legendary Intercontinental Tournament in Rio de Janeiro, although that it, there's nothing definitive about it that says it's the tournament or that it's anything. The consensus is is most likely that they invented this tournament to put this belt and establish some some legitimacy on Pat Patterson. Nothing, not taking away anything. I mean, this is storytelling here. What's not to love about? Hey, man, he went down to Rio de Janeiro. No cameras, no footage. There's no way for you to confirm it, but he won. You know, a 20 man tournament to win the first Intercontinental Championship. It's still going on today, guys, and it was going on in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s when the title was a gimmick or a or a, a it was a store. It was a device, and the reason I say that is because when we start defending the the legitimacy of the NWA as the one true lineal world championship it's important to note that all those threads are going to eventually all these capillaries and veins are going to eventually converge into one bloodstream that is the nwa world championship so who is the the, the first nwa world champion is it james hiram mclaughlin yeah is it george william flag yeah flag yeah all of them George William Flagg, I grind you the sausage, boy. You can't spell sausage without U-S-A. Hiram McLaughlin, uh, James Hiram McLaughlin wins the American Collar and Elbow Championship. There was no lineage to speak of at the time, but it was a, a clear title, a definitive championship. And again, he would lay claim to several titles. But the point I'm making is that prior to 1900, title claims are not as critical as they are today. They were not the hallmark of successful career back then because you might have a traveling champion or traveling wrestler that was a badass that didn't have a claim to any title. He just he was out there and he's just winning those purses and he would develop a, a gravitas or a certain you know air or aura about his name and character that was way more important than what a title would be because a title really is a modern construct. It comes into play after the 1900s as a serious, serious driving device in pro wrestling. It was much more important in those days to simply be known as the toughest guy on the block, as it were. And to Gary's point, alongside the collar and elbow title that McLaughlin held, you had other championships. You had the American Greco-Roman title. I remember Greco-Roman championship wrestling is not, sounds like a show. 
Greco-Roman Championship Wrestling. You know, tune in every Wednesday night at 6.05. Greco-Roman wrestling, cha- uh, wrestling was not as big in America as it was in Europe. It didn't really catch on. But you had an American Greco-Roman title. You had a European catch championship. You had an American catch championship. You had all those, each of which are predecessors to the one true title, the NWA World's title. They all converge as uh, like a bloodstream, capillaries, veins, this whole you know, circulatory network into what will eventually become the NWA belt. And the capillaries and the veins, they'll just uh, all come together and just raise that flagpole. George William Flag! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, boy. Yeah, I know. All right, uh, back to the script. As, and, and Gary alluded to this earlier, as a wrestling spectacle steadily increases in popularity more and more, and attendance rises, so did the accompanying accompanying gambling practices and, of course, the fixing or working of the matches. By the late 1800s, the wrestling uh, as a staple of the carny had steadily given away to the wrestling hippodrome match, which is basically the prize fight. Hippodrome match, remember that. That's on the test. This is the prize fight featuring large crowds, and therefore much more pernicious gambling practices and larger ticket gates in an arena setting because gates became an important part of the impetus behind the sport. Fixing became more and more commonplace, not only to manipulate gambling financial outcomes, but here it is, again, that key component of the modern sport, also to build a narrative to sell the next event. That became just as important as essential and commonplace. And therefore, you have narrative driving. And because there's narrative, you you necessarily have to have working going on. Or, hey, this is what's got to happen in this match. Well, I got you here because I had to look this up myself. Hippodrome is not a common word. And it's like <laughs> the Greek stadiums that horse races took place in. That's what it is. I had to look that up myself, so I just wanted to share that with the audience. But yeah, big, I thought, big, I, big stadium. I thought I thought that's what they prescribed when you uh, got your wisdom teeth taken out. So I'm glad you clarified that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, hey, 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 Will, let me get one of them hippodromes, bro. <laughs> Come on, hey, bro, nah, bro, nah. Let me get just two of them, bro. Can I help a boy out. <laughs> help your boy out. I'm gonna I play hungry, you. hungry hippodrome. I didn't have a joke for that. I just wanted oh, the only thing with hippo. Hey, you give me a couple of them. <laughs> hey, Will, I'll do everything you ask for a couple of them maple drums. Everything. I don't. I don't. I don't want this conversation to go any further. So, do you know George William Flag? Can you get me his autograph? Hippodrome, boy. <laughs> let me tell you what I'd do with a hippo. <laughs> That's what they call them, man. Like the slang. It's like it's like it's like it's not methamphetamine. It's just meth. A hippo. <laughs> Hey man, let me get a couple of them hippos. It's <laughs> going anyway, nowhere. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Listen, that's y'all's fault, man. That's actually Will's fault. This is your fault. I blame you. <sighs> you brought oh, up man. a hippodrome. I'm doing man. my job. All right. What are we so, supposed so, to do with hippodrome? Like, how are we supposed to use that? Yeah, we just know that every a, we turn it into a, a prescription drug reference, bro. That's what we did. We did. We okay. did our part. You don't want to let, let right. it go. All right. Anyway. So as we li- as we graduate from the carny, the regiment, the saloon, the open air pasture to the arena, <laughs> the pasture to the arena, the man 
who really emerges as the first great star. I'm not going to say superstar, but certainly the first great star of the business would be William Muldoon, the solid man. The solid man. This is this is not going to go better. This is. <laughs> so therefore, you therefore know, sometimes we just got to let it go. Therefore, I'm going to drive on, okay? Let's talk about William. Now, we're going to dive. <laughs> this ain't going to sound good either. We're going to dive deep. <laughs> We're gonna dive deep into. We're gonna dive deep Ooh. with the solid man. We're gonna get all up into them nooks and crannies on William Muldoon. Okay, <laughs> but he, he was a New York City police officer, a personal friend and acquaintance of the great President Theodore Roosevelt. He was the first chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission. This was a an educated man, a cultured man, a refined man. But it is William Muldoon, according to the research of Brian Solomon, who can be considered the first major star of the sport that we would recognize to be professional wrestling. If you saw William Muldoon work, you would say, oh, yeah, that's what I watch on Tuesday nights on Dark and Wednesdays on NXT and Dynamite. It's essentially the sport. We now have professional wrestling. Is it the same thing? Is it identical? Does the sport evolve, change, develop? Of course it does. But when you watch William Muldoon, you're watching pro wrestling guys. And debuting at the time of America's centennial. Man, man, you skipped so, right over the fact that, that William, Muldoon, M- William Muldoon, pardon me, was called the solid man because of a song that was written about him. On my notes, I have here the solid man that this is where Gary interjects. So, Well, I'm just saying... There was a song called Muldoon, the Solid Man. And this is the chorus. Then come with me and I'll treat you decent. I will get you drunk and I'll fill your can. (laughs) And on the street, every friend I meet says, there goes Muldoon, the Solid Man. (laughs) And anyway, I just saw I share that. I hope we can find it. You've got a music uh, background. I want to hear you sing it, bro. And come with me, and I'll treat you decent. I'll get you drunk, and I'll feel you can. And on the street, <laughs> every friend I meet says, "There goes Muldoon, the solid man." <laughs> Woo! Sounds like it sounds like you didn't know which genre to make it. Like you kept changing I throughout. <laughs> what I'll probably yeah. do? <laughs> it was like, it was like I, Nickelback, I and then it was an Creed. opera, and then it was a musical. There goes me. When I first heard the news news today, I'm going to just try to play. I think I'll just try to see if I can find somebody singing. You uh, need to go get your tuition money back is what you need to do, bro. (laughs) It says this is Gaelic. So that's what it says. A Gaelic singer named Nicholas Toybin from the Red District of Waterford. This was one of the only few English songs in his repertoire. I, I know I this is this is going nowhere. Let's move on. All right. Anyway, so, so man, he, he'll fill your hand. The solid man. <laughs> anyway, w- William Muldoon debuts in 18 and 76 in the year of our Lord. All right. The centennial of America. And he defeats Professor Tebow Bauer for the American Greco-Roman Championship at the first wrestling event ever. You're gonna like this, Will. You're a, WWE, you're a WWF guy. The first wrestling event ever at Gilmore Garden. Now, if you don't recognize that name, that. Gilmore, you know the Gilmore, Gilmore Girls? 
You know the Gilmore Girls. This is their oh, back. AKA, AKA the Madison Square Girls. No, no. Gilmore anyway, Garden, not, I'm not seeing it. Gilmore Garden would eventually become Madison Square Garden. And the, the first wrestling event ever at MSG, William Muldoon defeats Tebow Bauer for the American Greco-Roman Championship. The first WrestleMania. The Proto-Mania. Proto-Mania won. Following this, Muldoon becomes the first great traveling champion. He tours the nation, defending the crown. Wrestling is emerging. You've got stars popping up all over the place. And Muldoon beats all of them. He, he, got, he beats every one of them. He beats Edwin Bibby, Carl Abs. Sorikichi Matsuda, yep. the first Japanese pro wrestler, he defeats him, and Evan the Strangler Lewis. Now, before we get to Evan, yeah, before we get to Evan, though, he defeats his arch rival, the Kansas Demon, Clarence Whistler. Can Clarence Fun fact, could not whistle. Could not whistle, you're right. In and And... It's good to do it. It's not like he's just yeah. And so, and that was kayfabe. He's just a kayfabe yeah. whistler. He's, he's a kayfabe yeah. whistler. He was also horrible at swallowing glass. He was the worst glass swallower ever. In fact, it killed him eventually. Wow, that I'm is, actually, I'm actually pretty bad at that as well. So I can yes. relate. I think in like yeah. 1895 or something like that, there was a carnival feature where he was going to swallow glass. He did it. Boom, killed him. Ruptured his in internal organs and he, the man died. But before he died, in 1881. He got beat by William Dude. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I filled his can. He did. Mundoon did. But at one point in 1881, Mondoon and get this, guys. Mondoon and Clarence Whistler wrestled in 1881 to a seven hour draw. Oh. Seven hours they wrestled nonstop. No one could score a fall over the other. And uh, it was a draw. Will Will Kayfabe. Who would kayfabe that? No, heck no, man. They're, they were. <laughs> <laughs> they Mold were really trying. Yeah, they had to be right. Nobody kayfabes a seven-hour match. I'm over here kayfabing an, an hour-long podcast about to get my butt chewed. <laughs> hey, hey, seven hey, hours. My Are wife's waiting me? on me. Seven hours. So anyway, this is Muldoon's arch rival. This is the Tim Storm to the Nick Aldis. This is the Dusty Rhodes to the Ric Flair, William Muldoon, and Clarence Whistler, the first great rivalry in the modern sport of pro wrestling. Beautiful, man. In 1893, we finally arrive at a distinctive championship. Remember, at this point, championships have been pieces. They've been gimmicks. They've been... You know, they've been devices to move narratives along to sell tickets. But in 1893, we finally arrive at a distinctive championship that can be considered, I'm going to argue, the direct ancestor to Sweet Charlotte, the 10 pounds of gold, the Dome Globe, the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Catch style had definitively emerged as the preferred flavor of the American sport. And in 1893, Evan the Lewis laid claim to the American Heavyweight Championship. He had beaten Ernst Rober, the student of William Muldoon, to claim the catch title. He had early, earlier claimed the, the collar and elbow title from Rober, and then he already held the Greco-Roman championship. So he basically combined and unified these three style championships into the American Heavyweight Championship, and it is this belt that will eventually become the belt that Frank Gotch will wear 
later on down the road. We're not going to get there yet, but just moving on. Martin Burns. Oh, by the way, by the way, um, talking about tournaments, we don't have any video footage of this or anything like that. I don't have any documentary, documentary evidence to support this. But according to legend, Evan the Strangler Lewis, the first person to bear that moniker, debuted in 1882 by winning in Montana a tournament consisting of 64 men. A 64-man tournament. Evan the Strangler Lewis. That joker was stout. Yeah. I mean, he was stout, and I see where you're going with this, and we're going to get to the NWA title, and if you don't stop kissing Nick Aldis's ass, I swear, Rob. No, but seriously, in 1861, though, there was a man born who was he was into wrestling since he was a child, like seeing his first wrestling match. And there's so much to tell about this. So we're going to brush through this as quickly as possible, but he started as a kid taking like a scientific approach to viewing pro wrestling. And while catch as catch can or catch wrestling was uh, huge in one place, it evolved like parallel to American wrestling and the idea of submissions and hooks, trying to use those to get power over your opponent, they weren't for this guy who only would ever grow to be 165 pounds, but he was apparently strong as a bear, and he just knew how to hook you up. And in 1895, Martin Farmer Burns would beat Evan Strangler Lewis to become the first American or well, the American heavyweight championship champion. I shouldn't say the first, but I mean, we teased him last episode and I guess that was an early tease, but I wanted to get there just because I mean, guy came out of nowhere. This Evan, the Strangler Lewis, the 64 man tournament guy, the guy that's like unified all these titles and blah, blah, blah. Well, Martin, the farmer Burns came out and whooped that ass. But of course, Evan Lewis had whooped Martin Burns' ass earlier in his career, too. When he first started. Exactly. But but that's important. That's important to the narrative, Gary. So you just skipped all over this content. Look, man, I got things to do. <laughs> look, look, we're, we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up, guys. All right. You've been, you've been, we've been going on, what, about an hour and a half here? Martin Burns developed his own brand, being a fan of the sport, like Gary said. He became a wellspring of wrestling knowledge and tradition, invented a number of holds. That we still use today. You want to talk about holes that Martin Burns, Martin Farmer Burns invented? The full Nelson, the toe hold, the hammer lock, the arm bar, the Scandinavian two-toed gradanza. He did not invent those. that. <clears throat> arm bar. Arm bar, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the spinning leg whistler. He, he, he invented all those, and more important to his legacy, he established a school out of Iowa, wrestling holy ground, that would graduate somewhere around 3,000 students. Now, Burns, a native of Iowa himself, this is wrestling holy ground, had been a traveling carny wrestler and witnessed the rise of the arena sport, but this early loss to Evan the Strangler Lewis encouraged him to improve his physical size, his strength and endurance, and to make his neck impervious to the Strangler's infamous Rear naked choke or sleeper hold. Okay. That's fair enough. Okay. So I did skip that. But I also looked at that as like he was also boosting his showmanship 
Like he was like, mm-hmm. I know now what wrestling is. I have to be a wrestler. Martin Farmer Burns was the first guy to be like, there is more to this than just I got holds. He was the first guy to be like, I got to bulk up. I got to look good in front of the crowd. I got to look like my neck can't take a stranglehold. And it was the first in a tradi- a long honored tradition of wrestlers that would hang themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Not like David Carradine style. Like he would, he would, those who know now, the, he, he was, he was a uh, beaver baiting while he did it. The, the, the guy from NXS, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, anyway, yeah, the yeah, point is, is Farmer Birds would like, he got his neck so thick, he could be dropped from God, like six feet up and still be fine. Like that was one of his like carnival tricks. It was the showmanship. And he Farmer would like, sing a whistle too, right? He liked to whistle Yankee Doodle. When you did while it. hanging, while hanging, guys, while hanging, you drop six feet. Not just like hanging, like I'll tie a rope and like pull you up a little bit. Like no, I will tie a rope and I'm going to drop you six feet and see if you live. And he just whistled the whole time. That's 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 yeah. effed up, man. That junk's not going to fly today, man. <laughs> you know. No, but anyway, no. anyway, anyway, anyway. In 1889, Burns avenges his loss against Evan the Strangler finally defeating him in a match in Chicago. According to legend, Burns had forgotten to come prepared with his ring gear. Instead, he shows up in a pair of overalls, being a good Iowa boy that he was, and the announcer introduces him as Farmer Burns, and the name remained forever. And that is how we have the birth of Martin Farmer Burns. Now, to tie this all in here, guys, you've got William Muldoon, you've got... Evan the Strangler Lewis, you've got the regimental champions, James Hiram McLaughlin, George William Flagg, and Farmer Burns. These are the prophets that emerged as the sport's first great stars. And they guided the sport from the carnival to the regiment, to the saloon, to the open field, to the arena. And as the 1800s turned to the 1900s, the responsibility of shepherding the sport would be handed over to Farmer Burns's top student, his most important student, the man who would be destined to become not just the first star like they were in the 1800s, but America's first mega star, the first Hulk Hogan, the first John Cena, the first rock, the first Ric Flair, the first major sports celebrity in American history. But that guys is a story for next week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to like, we're, we're trying to make these things flow, but I just want to be clear. I mean, we'll come back to Mark Farmer Burns because I think he's very important to all of these things. He won about 6,000 matches in his career and lost like seven, I think. So he was a pretty big deal. But the biggest legacy he has is starting a school, a school that would lead to like literally pretty much every wrestler you've ever heard of. But the one that Rob's talking about is one in America that's going to be a big deal. His name is Frank Gotch. And and I only say that, Rob, just to establish that, you know, we're obviously USA over here. But at the same time, over across the ocean there was another guy and mm. he was he was doing his own thing and he was uniting europe 
in pro wrestling and becoming what seems like one of the first body guys, like the first bodybuilding, like just physical specimens. And he was called the Russian lion. George the first one to incorporate patriotism, you know, love of country into the sport. You know, he would carry that beautiful blue, red, and white Russian tricolor, you know, George Hackenschmidt, the Russian lion. He had beaten he had beaten the flat hand style in France. He had conquered every style over in Europe and he had worked his way into the Greco-Roman. Like he was he was the European champion, like heavily considered the European heavyweight champion at the same time that Martin Burns was dominating the US and became a teacher and trying to pass on his legacy. So we'll see. It's like a Rocky versus Drago kind of thing, like Rocky Four coming up here in the next episode as we move along. George Hackenschmidt, Frank Gotch is going to be huge. All right, fellas. Well, I think that one does it for this week. We're going to get these people over. Hopefully, hopefully you're sticking with us. We are, we are taking you through pro wrestling history. Will, how do you feel right now? How, how do you feel about this whole thing? Oh, I feel great, man. I think, you know, this is something that, you know, wrestling is is always promoted as historic, but I don't think we do enough actual dives into the true history of it. And it's something that is still very much prominent today. And a lot of this, if you're even more than a casual wrestling fan, you've, you've probably never heard of this stuff. So I think this is all really valuable. It helps us kind of see the roots of all the stuff that we're watching today and that we enjoy. So uh, this is great. Well, we got a head on collision. I promise you it's going to start getting epic starting next week. We've done a lot of deep dives into the history, like just to, just to kind of build like the, the establishing, like the foundation of what pro wrestling is starting next week. It gets into every pro wrestling story you've ever heard in your entire life stems from this one, George Hackenschmidt, Frank Gotch, these two are going to, they're destined for a head-on collision. The American best versus the European best. And it's, it's going to get real, real quick. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to get nasty. Uh, yeah. Mr. Flag, it's going to get nasty. <laughs> where, flag, where am I? Oh, Jesus. Boy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. It's been a long enough episode. We appreciate all of you for being with us that's at this is will martin at this is dr stinson i'm at this is gary horton always at tipw show is the thing join our discord it's the pinned tweet at the top of our twitter maybe someday will will fix the link to the thing he was trying to do one day on a live show and we we love you guys thank you so much for listening i hope i hope you're sticking with us like we're legitimately trying to be thorough in this thing and take you through pro wrestling history. We think there's an audience for this stuff. And so if you're out there and you dig it, you got to share it. You got to tell other people about it. You got to you gotta get the word out that we're doing this thing. And I word. promise you. Yeah. We're going to do deep dives into the people. But right now, we're just trying to walk you through a timeline. For those of you who maybe knew or didn't know already, this is the timeline of pro wrestling. That's what we're doing right now. And then we're going to go back. We'll double down on a Farmer Burns story someday or whoever you want to hear about. We'll, we'll tell you all about them because there's more, there's more stories to tell. We're just trying to, to outline the thing for you. Rob, you have anything you want to add? 
No, nah, man, I, I had a good time, man. This was a fun discussion, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting to Gotch and Hackenschmidt. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We love you guys, and until next week, enjoy your gravy cake.